This is Bite Sized Blessings. What's up, everybody? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Bite Sized Blessings. This is the podcast that offers you a 15 minute devotional thought to anchor your week and strengthen your Christian walk. I am your host, Charles Eaton. And uh, before we get started, you know, how y'all doing? Y'all doing okay? I know for me, I, I am surviving coronavirus. My family is surviving coronavirus, but the virus itself has started to touch the outer circles of my own circle, right? It's, it's in my friend's life. It's in the life of, of people who are adjacent to me. And it's been really, really scary. I've seen, I have had many friends now who have lost loved ones, some people losing multiple loved ones to this virus. And, and people are dying of other things too. It's, it's, it's just been so much death in the last month it started with you know like kobe and gianna and that that unnecessary tragedy that happened earlier and it's just it's just spiraled out since then and the government response to corona to COVID is it's just been so lacking and so much needless death i yeah too many conversations with people who are in mourning right now too many conversations with people who are struggling to cope with sudden loss and and I think it's it's those conversations that have somewhat inspired uh, what we're going to be talking about today, both this bite and next week's bite as well. We're going to be looking at the story of Job, the story of Job. This is going to be at least a two-parter, at least a two-parter. Um, I think it's times like these when the story of Job really shines and we really understand why it's included in the Christian canon. It's Job is meant for dangerous, tragic times. That's when Job is meant to be read. And so we're going to take a look at Job today. We're going to take a look at Job today. Today's text is going to be from Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And it reads as follows. Job 1 verses 6 through 10. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 11 also. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. That's Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. I think, other than the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it is my opinion, just me, 
that Job is the most important story in the Bible. There are things that happen in Job, theologies that are discussed in Job, which we really don't get anywhere else. Now, most of you are probably already familiar with the story, but here's a quick primer for those who are not. Uh, here's the entire book of Job in basically 30 seconds. So Job, he is a foreigner. He's from the land of Uz, I believe. He is very rich, has many kids, uh, camels, sheep, donkeys, servants, mansions. You know, he's doing well for himself. And he is a worshiper of God. Um, and in chapter one of Job, the verses that we just read, we just read, we have this divine conversation that takes place between God and Satan. And in this divine conversation, we have a challenge that's issued. And, and we're going to talk a lot more about that challenge in a second. But as a result of that challenge, God says, okay, Satan, uh, I will withdraw my hand of protection from around him and his family. You can basically do what you want. And Job in rapid succession uh, loses his houses, loses his servants, loses his livestock, loses all of his wealth, loses his children. All of his children die. He had many sons and daughters. They all die. It is just him and his wife and, and his life is, is suddenly broken. After his life breaks, he has several friends that come to him. I believe there are three friends that come to him and they sit with him for seven days in silence. And then they start to, I think in their head, try to minister and comfort Job. And that comfort doesn't sit well with Job. Job tries to proclaim his innocence to his friends, saying, basically, I don't deserve these things that are happening to me. And his friends are like, yo, you need to repent. You need to change your life. This is awful. You need to, you need to change up. And Job is like, I have nothing to change up for. I'm doing fine. I was a righteous man. His friends don't believe him. Um, and the conversations between Job and his friends basically go on for the next like 30 chapters. It's, it's a long bit of conversation that happens in the middle. Beautiful if you ever take the time to slowly read that, like really, really beautiful, tough conversation. I, but I guess most people skip it. Um, and then at the end, after Job for 30 chapters basically is defending his honor saying, no, I'm really a good person. I don't deserve this. I don't know why this is happening to me. Job starts pleading like, God, you know, like defend yourself. Like I need you to come and explain this. Why did you do this to me? This makes no sense. And then in the last two or three chapters of Job, we get God's response to Job, which is basically, you are too small to understand what I have done. Don't try and question me. God really um, flexes on Job in those last couple chapters, two or three chapters of beautiful poetry. And most of it is God saying, who are you to ever ask me a question? And then after that, God restores Job's wealth, gives him more sons and daughters. That's basically the entire book of Job. But we're going to focus, like I said, this, this is going to be a two-parter at least, maybe a third part. But for today, we're going to focus on a couple really specific things that happened in the beginning. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting and that I don't think gets enough attention when people look at the story of Job is the fact that Job is a foreigner from the land of us. And because Job is a foreigner from the land of us, he worships God differently than how we are used to seeing the Israelites worship God. Job is not an Israelite. Job is a foreigner. And his relationship with God is different. Um, so Job has a huge family, right? He has many sons. He has many daughters. And one of the things that's really, really interesting, I believe, I'll just read it in verses four through six, right? Four and five. This is what verses four and five say. 
His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. That's really interesting. It's a little different from what we normally see happen in the Israel, with the Israelites, right? Job is performing sacrifices preemptively, right? He has no proof that anything amiss has gone down. He has no real reason to think, oh man, uh, they, they really messed up yesterday. He's just doing this preemptively. He is preemptively offering sacrifices on their behalf. We don't see that type of thing happen with the Israelites, this type of preemptive sacrifice um also not just that you know with the israelites there's this is a whole thing that has to be done there's the day of atonement there's the high priest there's the tabernacle like this isn't just sort of haphazard willy-nilly you know there's a there's a very much a system in place for the israelites to do these sacrifices and the high priest is doing it on behalf of everybody else you don't see that happening here in the story of job job is just doing it himself he takes it upon himself to offer these sacrifices for his kids. He's not getting the high priest. He's, he's not a high priest himself. We have no uh, inclination of that in the text, but Job is still taking it upon himself to do this for his household preemptively. Very similar to how the Israelites worship God, right? Very similar, but not quite the same. And I, I really appreciate that, that it's included in the Hebrew scriptures because what it's showing is no single culture has a monopoly on the proper way to worship God, even on the important things, right? Because for the Israelites, you know, the, the sacrificial system, like this is critical to the relationship with God. You might even say central to the relationship with God in the Old Testament, how it's done, when to do it, the reasons why they're doing it, who is doing it, where it's happening. These are not points of debate for them. This is like, boom, boom, boom. It has to happen this way. This is how God ordained it to be. And over here, you have Job from the land of Uz, who is doing this very, also very important and central and critical theological task, but he's doing it differently, right? He's doing it differently. I imagine that if Job were to tell the Israelites what he was doing, or if they were going to watch him, they would be very upset. You know, what are you doing? This is profane. This is blasphemy. You don't do it this way. You have to do it in this order. You can't even be the one to do it, and you're doing it at the wrong time, etc., etc., etc. But we don't see that. We just see Job doing what works in his context. We see Job doing what works from his perspective and with his relationship with God. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from that. I think, especially in my denomination, I, I my denominational background is a Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> we love telling people how they should be worshiping God. We love to tell people that they are not doing it the right way. <laughs> uh, I might get in trouble. That's all right, though. Um, we love telling people the way you're doing it is okay, but we have a better way. That is like a hallmark of my denomination. I love my people. I love my people. They are flawed, though. And even interdenominationally, right, you see, um, I'm just going to say, you know, a lot of times you see a lot of 
um, suspicion, a lot of aspersions cast from the white leadership at the general conference level towards black churches and brown churches, specifically over their use of drums in the worship service and music that is up-tempo. Um, you might think, what? They, they care? Yes, they do. They care. And they say things. And it's not, for them, it is not a good thing. But what I see in the story of Job, uh, right off the top, what I see is Job worshiping God in his context. And it works for him. And this is how God speaks to him. And this is how he communicates with God. And yeah, the Israelites might be upset if they see what Job is doing. But we need to do intentional work about checking our cultural superiority and theological superiority about how God must be worshipped. God is so big. And God has had people all over the world and in all times. Who are we, Adventists, to look at other people and say, you are not doing this the right way? Um, who are we, white Adventists, to look at black and brown churches and say, y'all, music is second class and chaos and cacophony? That ain't right. We have to be very careful about denominational superiority, about judging how people worship God, especially when these differences are born from identity, like culture and races and nationality. So we have Job, the foreigner, who worships God differently than how we are used to seeing in the text. And then Satan comes up to God with a theological challenge. And it's really, really interesting. We have to stop and consider what's happening here. This is Satan's theological challenge to God. People only worship you because you do good things for them. People only worship you because you protect them. They only worship you because you bless them. Satan is calling God a karmic vending machine. He is saying that these relationships that you think you've built are not real. They are flimsy and fraudulent. They are, they are flimsy and fraudulent. You can poke holes in them easily. Satan says if you take away the nice things, if you take away the blessings, all of a sudden these people who you think rock with you, they're not going to rock with you no more, right? This is a really, really powerful challenge. It's a challenge that says people love you because you do for them, not because of who you are. And I know that the middle of Job, that 30 chapters where he's talking with his friends, I know that's really boring for a lot of people. But Satan's challenge to God, very interestingly, is sort of proven correct through the arguments that Job has with his friends, at least in general, right? For many people, this was the theology they held to at that time in Job's culture. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to read quickly from Exodus chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. Um, not Exodus, excuse me. Job chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. This is uh, the first thing that one of Job's friends says to Job. This is the words of Bildad, one of Job's friends trying to bring comfort to Job. Now watch what Bildad says. Job chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. 
Then Bildad the Shuite answered, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children sinned against him, he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful place. This is the challenge. This is what Satan is saying, that, wow, if you all are doing right, God will bless you. And if you all are doing wrong, God will curse you. Job is saying, I am doing right. I should be blessed. And his friends are looking at Job's life and saying, wow, you have had a massive tragedy happen here. If you were doing right, you would be blessed. Since you had this tragedy, you must be doing wrong. Therefore, Job, you need to repent. Stop talking this great wind about how you are pure and right and just. You're not. Clearly, look at yourself, bro. Um, I don't want to get too deep here, but part of the reason why this karmic vending machine theology was so central to the argument of Job and his friends was because of their conception of the afterlife, right? They didn't have a conception like we do of, of heaven and hell and streets of gold and, you know, no more crying and no more dying and, and, and all of these things that we believe about heaven. We, they didn't have any of that back then. What they had, their conception of the afterlife was sort of limited to something called a place called Sheol. Um, Sheol. And Sheol is basically just the resting place for the souls of the dead. That's where your soul goes to rest after you died. And importantly, it wasn't anything to look forward to, right? This wasn't, like I said, it wasn't like a streets of gold, everyone will have their own mansion type of scenario. It's just, oh, you die and then you go to rest. It's a concept of being at peace, but it wasn't anything to anticipate, right? So this is, why is that important? Well, it's important because for them, this life was really all they had, right? The, the, the 70 to 80, 90 years that they were alive and walking the earth, that was the thing for them. There was nothing else that was coming. So for that reason, this is why this karmic theology becomes really important. They believed if you worshiped God and do right, then God would bless you here and now, which is important because here and now is all that there is. Um, and the opposite is also true. If you don't do right, if you're doing wrong and, and you're messing up, then bad things are going to happen to you here and now because there is no heaven and hell um, with which they can reflect their actions into the future. It's all about the here and now. So they see the tragedy that is happening in Job's life as indicative of Job's great sinfulness. Thus, they are calling him to repentance. They are actually rebuking him over and over and over again because he claims he's innocent. They are like, dude, you are not innocent. You are not clean. You are not pure. Look at your life. Look at what's happening to you. Do not call God a liar. This, is, this, is, this would not be happening to you if you were pure and upright. So, man, whew, two different points here, I think. First point, there is a temptation, I think, in a lot of our lives to take up the theology of Job's friends, right? This theology of gauging our standing with God 
by how well or how poorly our life is going, right? If the job is going good and the grades are good and the finances are good and wifey is good and the kids are good, like if all of these external proxies of success and happiness are okay, then we are tempted to say, then I am also good with God. And the reverse is also true, right? If if I'm getting laid off or furloughed and I'm dropping out of classes or I'm failing or I'm struggling and my relationships are falling apart and I'm emotionally unstable and I haven't talked uh, with my girlfriend in a while and my relationship with my parents is falling apart, all of these things are happening to us. We have a tendency to also assume, man, my relationship with God must also be falling apart. And interestingly, you have like a third thing that happens, right? Especially in the black community, right? We'll see a third version of this. I call it the holy broke folk, the holy broke folk syndrome. syndrome. Uh, I don't think I created that. I'm pretty sure that's like a thing everywhere. Holy broke folk, right? Where if you're holy broke folk, you if you are struggling, your struggle is itself a sign that God's favor is upon you, right? If you if things are falling apart, particularly on the job and in society, if things are difficult, if everything is falling apart, if you're financially destitute, this itself is a sign of holiness that God is trying to work something out through you. I have some sympathy for the holy broke folk syndrome. Um, you know, because his, you know, it's, it's kind of like a defense mechanism for the historical context of black folk in this country, right? We have come through so much struggle, so much oppression, so much of our story um, earlier in the, in, the, in the 20th century, coming up through the 20th century. So much of that story is steeped in oppression and struggle. I'm not surprised at all that black folks started to use that struggle and oppression as a marker of God's favor to, of God's favor to say you know we are being prepared for something we are being shaped for something because we are struggling we know that we are in the will of God that doesn't surprise me that that happened um so i have some sympathy for it but i i do think that the ministry of Jesus and the story of Job in particular shows the limits of these comparisons, of these proxies, because we know, you can look around, we know there are wicked rich folk and good poor folk and wicked poor folk and good rich folk. This intertwining of spirituality and success is really dangerous, actually, right? Because on the one hand, you have a recipe for excess shame because your whole life is falling apart financially, emotionally, mentally. It's all crumbling. And then you can just pile on, oh, man, like, clearly God, I'm not walking with God right now because if I was, all this stuff would be good and I'm not. So it's like you just pile on that shame on this side. And, and on this side, you might be tempted to think that you are spiritually in a good place when you aren't right you might be tempted to look at all of the blessings that are upon your life the 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 kids the job the grades the money situation all of that and you might say huh yeah look at that god is really blessing me i'm good and, and you might not be um so we want to be very careful about how we intertwine spirituality and success we want to be intentional about decoupling those two things so that we are not using one as a proxy for the other. The second thing that's that's that I was thinking about looking at 
Satan's challenge to God as a karmic vending machine. And it's a little bit tricky, but I think it's really important, right? Um, remember, the challenge is people are only worshiping you because of what you do. Uh, if you stop doing these nice things, if you stop protecting people, if you stop blessing them, then they will not worship you anymore. Satan is calling God's relationship with people fraudulent and flimsy. Now, there's a show I really, really like. It's one of my favorite shows. The show is called Bojack Horseman. And basically, the show is about um, a character, a horse, Bojack, who is struggling to become a good person. I love the show. It's about relationship and friendship and becoming a good person and doing better and struggle and forgiveness and reconciliation. It's about a lot. It's about a lot. Um, but anyway, at one point in the show, Bojack Horseman turns to one of his friends and he says, and Bojack Horseman, by the way, is not a good person. He does a lot of terrible, terrible things to his friends all the time. And he, he looks at one of his friends and says, you think I'm a good person, right? Like, I know I do bad stuff every once in a while, but you do think I'm a good person, like, deep down. And the friend looks at Bojack and says, you know, that's funny. I don't really believe in deep down. I kind of think all you are is what you do. Oh, I love that. I love that line. Ah, I love that line. I All you are, I don't believe in deep down. All you are is what you do. That's powerful. That's powerful to me. Um, don't, don't, don't tell me that you have this, you know, character deep hidden inside you that's, that's really good and pure and gold. No, 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 no. Show me who you are by your actions, right? Don't, don't, don't be subtle with your character on the inside. Let it be displayed in how you treat people and, and by your actions. Um, and you know, people, I, people love to do terrible things and be like, you know, oh, I didn't mean it. Or, you know, I'm not really like that. You know, all these white people on social media being racist and then saying, you know, I'm not really a racist. You know, they called you the N-word and they're making slave jokes and, 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 you know, making jokes about cracking the whip on people and dragging black people through the mud and all this stuff. And then they get called out on it like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not really racist. That's not really me. You know, it's just, no, 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 no. Body it, you know? Don't, don't try and tell me that there's this some other you deep down inside. You showed me who you were through your actions. I see. Um, but it gets complicated when you think about God's uh, challenge that God was challenged by Satan. That's where it gets complicated, right? And, and here's sort of how I sort this out. It's one thing to love someone only because they do nice things for me. It's another thing to know and understand somebody's true character through what they do, right? We all have that friend I call him the 911 friend, right? We all know somebody who only hits us up when they need something. It's never like, hi, how are you? How are you doing? What's going on with you? What's happening? It's never, you know, to try and build relationship and connect on a human to human level. You know, you know, if you see them in your phone, it's going to be like, all right, what's up? What you need? What's happening? What's going on? You know, whatever. And that's not great. The 911 friendship. That's not that's not real friendship, right? Then that was basically God Satan's challenge to God in Job chapter one, right? God is Satan is saying that, you know, God, all your friends are 911 friends. They all just they're all just here for what you do. They're not here for you as a person. But I think that's different uh, from what's happening in Bojack. The point there is to say that your actions are indicative of your character. 
I can know who you are. I can see you. I can understand you by and through what you do. See, we don't really know God. I haven't seen God, you know, um, but I, I can see what God has done most critically through my life, through the lives of my ancestors, and through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I can worship and love who God is as reflected in how God has moved in those situations, right? It's a subtle difference, subtle difference, but it's a very important one. So that's the bite for today. Here are a couple discussion questions to sort of simmer on. Here's the first one. Why do you love God? And what does it mean to love God? When you speak of loving God, is this, is this a feeling for you? Is it emotion? Is it respect? Is it duty? What is bound up in that word for you to love God? And if someone came up to you and challenged you and said, you only love God because God prospers you, the challenge that Satan gave God, how would you respond to that type of challenge? That's the first question. Here's the second question. What do you think about that line from Bojack Horseman? I don't believe in deep down. I think all you are is what you do. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Is there some nuance there? What do you think? Okay. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you for those who are watching. Lord, I pray that you be with us, be with our families as we are trying to stay safe from Corona. Be with us as we are struggling in social isolation. Be with our elderly who aren't able to see people as much as they might be used to. Lord, I pray that you teach us what it means to have a healthy conception of you. I pray, Lord, that you teach us what it means to have a healthy valuation of our success in this life. I pray, Lord, that you teach us how to decouple how our external life is going from our relationship with you. Show us that they are different, God. Do not let us get content with worldly success and do not let us be overly shamed by worldly failure. By worldly failure. Thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, that is episode four of Bite Size Blessings. Uh, I believe next week we're definitely gonna be talking about Job and potentially the week after. We're going to be talking about Job. Maybe. We'll see. A sort of a preview for next week. You know, we're going to be looking at the response of God to Job, where God flexes on Job and says, who are you to ask me these questions? And, you know, if you want to start thinking about it ahead of time, why would God say that to Job? What kind of response is that to someone who's just gone through what Job has gone through? Right? This is what we're going to be talking about next week. Um, you can follow Bite Size Blessings on Twitter, at Bite Size Blessed. You can follow me, Charles Eaton, on Twitter. I'm at Chuck Rocks, C-H-U-K-R-O-X-X. Um, you can find Bite Size Blessings on the YouTube channel. We're on all your major podcasts, Spotify, um, Apple, Google Play, TuneIn Radio. We're on, we're on all of that. And thank you all for watching. I'll see you next week. This has been Episode 4 of Bite Sized Blessings. Mm -hmm.